0: okay we're live hi this is william ramsey welcome to william ramsey investigates on today's show of a very special guest his name is dr richard a williams and he's publishing a book which will be published uh, within the month on october 26 2021 the title of the book is fixing food an fda insider unravels the myths and the solutions and um dr richard a williams is an economist risk analyst op-ed writer and an expert in food safety and nutrition From 1980 to 2007, he served as the director for social social science with the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the FDA. From 2007 to 2016, he was the vice president, president for policy research at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He recently served on the U.S. EPA Science Advisory Board and is the board chairman for the Center for Truth in Science and a board member of the Institute for the Advancement of Food and Nutrition Sciences. He's also a senior affiliated scholar with the Utah State Center for Growth and Opportunity and the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. So really interesting book. He has a lot of uh, fascinating stories about his time in government, particularly at the FBA. But he can talk more about that. So, Dr. Richard A. Williams, are you there?
1: I'm here. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. People may not have heard your name or, you know, the stories about the FBA. Can you talk about your background and what led you to write this book, Fixing Food?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I never intended to go into the federal government. Uh, I was in the army, actually was in Vietnam. And after that, I went back to college and and to graduate school. And then I taught for a year and had actually taken a job at another university when I got a call from my dissertation chairman. And he said, why are you going to this university? I said, well, it seemed like the best idea at the time. And he had gotten a call from somebody at FDA who would interviewed me. And he said, you know, maybe they don't have a lot of economists like you, uh, Richard in government, maybe it'd be good to go in there and get some stories uh, so you can tell your classes. So, um, you know, I agree with him, that was a good idea. I was teaching government and business. And my idea was I'd go in for a year and a half, year and a half, year to two years, something like that. I'd get some stories and then I'd leave. Um, But actually it was an interesting place to work. And I became so interested in the issues that I ended up staying for 27 years. Uh, It it wasn't a plan. Um, When I first got there, It was quite clear to me that nobody in the FDA had any idea what an economist was doing there. But if you recall, at the time, uh, President Carter said, "Um, I'm going to issue an executive order, and I want to see costs and benefits for all major regulations, because even President Carter realized there was a problem with the regulatory state. Once President Reagan came in, he doubled down on that and created the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs to oversee all regulations, and in particular, the costs and benefits of regulations. I knew I belonged there,
0: uh, and I just ended up staying. And that was kind of something different at the time. There was some resistance to applying this cost-benefit analysis, correct?
1: Oh, my golly, yes. Uh, In fact, the very first analysis that I did, um, I I take it back. It was the second analysis I did. It was a huge analysis. I spent months on it. Uh, And then I found out that the uh, person in the commissioner's office who was responsible for reading these read it. I think it was probably about 70 pages or so. And he threw it away and he put his own analysis in, which was about a quarter of a page. He said, there's not much to see here. <laughs> and so, yeah, there was a lot of resistance.
0: And so that was something new. But the foundations of the FDA were based upon some muckraking journalism right at the after the turn of the century. Can you talk about how the FDA was formed and why it was formed?
1: Yeah, and I think there was an absolute need for the FDA. This was 1906 and there were two things going on. The first thing was Sinclair Lewis uh, and he was a muckraker, he was a socialist. Um, and he tried to write about the horrible working conditions for people in meat plants. Uh, and instead, he, he also noticed in fact that there were rats running around meat. The rats would frequently defecate on the meat, they'd be ground up in the meat. And people didn't care so much about the working conditions but they cared about the fact that they were, what they were eating. So that was a pretty big deal. And then at the same time, over in the Bureau of Chemistry in USDA, there was this obscure scientist. And he started looking at the poisons that were being added to food. Or Some of them were considered poisons back then, not so much now. Uh, But he was publicizing them. And he had what he called the poison squad, which was young men that were volunteering to eat massive doses of things. And then he'd see what would happen to them. So both of those things wound up in the news. Consumers became alarmed. Uh, President Roosevelt was alarmed, but he didn't trust uh, this guy Harvey Wiley over at USDA. Thought he was just trying to get publicity for himself. He certainly didn't trust Sinclair Lewis. Um, So he decided to send his own people into the meatpacking plants and he did. And they wrote what became the McNeil report. And it it basically documented everything that that, uh, Sinclair Lewis had said. And so he just finally decided to sign um, the first bill, the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act. There was one other thing that bothered him. When he found out that you could make a blended whiskey that wasn't a pure whiskey, that really bothered Roosevelt. He said, well, we have to do something about that. So those three things sort of in combination gave us our first public health agency. But like I said, there were yeah, the problems were obvious. Clean up these filthy plants and stop adding poisons to food. Those are not the problems we have today.
0: Right. So the the original intent was there to keep the 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 uh, you know all that stuff clean. Sausage, whiskey, and right. there in your first chapter, I saw that you mentioned uh, Thorstein Veblen. So I was happy to see his name. <laughs> not too many people reference him, but he was the, you know, an economist. Right. He was the guy who invented conspicuous consumption or the concept of conspicuous. Yeah. But uh, can you talk about some of these cases you like you went through the lawn darts or the saccharine red? I mean, I remember the red scare, red, uh, red number three when I was a kid. That was a huge issue. I and mean, talk about some of those things that the FDA dealt with or wrestled with and how they uh, came to decisions about these items.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, the saccharin one was an interesting one to me. I wasn't directly involved in that, but it was going on when I first got there. And if you recall, we were going to ban saccharin. Um, a lot of consumers started writing in going, and in fact, we had 50,000 comments to this. And, and some of the comments that I remember best I actually put in the book, uh, one of them said, uh, he was so angry about what we were doing, he was going to come to Washington and shoot every bureaucrat he saw. And I thought, well, how will he know which ones are bureaucrats? I didn't, we weren't wearing badges. Uh, but some people were asking the question, wait a minute, what does feeding a rat, the equivalent of about 800 cans of soda a day had to do with me drinking two cans of soda. And that was the first really exposure to toxicology I had and some of the issues and and those issues continue today. I think the other one uh, comment that I love was somebody who thanked us for doing that. And it had little paw prints as a signature and it was signed the Rats of America. They thanked us for stopping
0: killing all our brethren. (laughs) Right, so those were huge issues, huge public scares and scandals too at the time, right? There was yeah. huge saccharin panic, too, right?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it was consider, considered to be a carcinogen. But what we know, well, the reason we had, were looking at that was because of the Delaney Amendment. And that was a law in 1958 says that any substance added to food that might cause cancer in humans or in animals, which would include mice and rats, could not be allowed in the food supply. So the issue was uh, that that we even knew back then, even in 1958, scientists knew back then, we could find things in parts per million. So if you take any food and you know of something that's a carcinogen and you look for it, parts per million, you're bound to find some. Today, we still have the same law from 1958 and it's parts per quadrillion, meaning you can definitely find anything. So just recently, last year, uh, because they were petitioned to do so, FDA banned six food and color additives they apologize for doing so. They realize these things are not carcinogenic, it's just that they're in, in these infinitesimal amounts, um, but under the law, they had to do it.
0: Right, so the, do- the dose is the po- poison, right? Isn't the that dose the is The thing? dose is
1: the poison, right. And unfortunately, too many people just confuse that. They, they wanna talk about what's a hazard. So if you find something at high doses that, that causes cancer or something, you say, oh, well, this is a hazard. But at low dose, not only may it not be a hazard, it, it may be there's a threshold below which there's no no harm. In some cases, that below the threshold, there's a dose that's actually helpful to you.
0: Right, and didn't so, you? Yeah, you had that experiment where you had water and arsenic and, and dared people to drink it, not <laughs> knowing that there's small doses of all kinds of stuff. And Well, yeah.
1: So- yeah, I mean, this is something I did to class. for classes. I, uh, before I go in the class, I'd take a test tube and I'd fill up uh, half the test tube with a little water from their water fountain. And then I'd go in and I'd say, um, so I have some water here and it contains some uh, arsenic. And what I'd like to do is I'd like somebody in the class to drink this so we can see what happens to them. And then nobody would respond. And I'd actually walk down and put it in front of people and go, how about you? And of course, everybody would rear back. And then then I'd drink it. And I'd say, OK, this is to illustrate that dose makes the poison. There's a little bit of arsenic in almost all the water we drink, but it doesn't do you any harm. In uh, point of fact, you know, we've gone back and forth in medicine on arsenic for, you know, hundreds of years, and today arsenic is actually being treated. Uh, small amounts of arsenic is used is used for treating uh, leukemia. Oh,
0: interesting! I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. So, you, I mean, there's all of these tests going on at the FDA. You talked about in, uh, infant formula and things like that that were so vital, at least to our society, it didn't used to be. Can you talk about the kind of infant formula debate and why they had to be changed?
1: Well, so what we had, we had, there was a problem with infant formula. Congress got in, passed the law, and and this is what happens. They pass a law, and then it goes over to the regulatory agency, and we're supposed to pass implementing regulations. Uh, the biggest problem with infant formula is when babies are lactose intolerance. And lactose, of course, is the milk sugar in uh, infant formula. And if they are, you simply switch them over to a soy-based formula. Uh, and so, but nevertheless, when we got a law, uh, FDA started looking at it and like they do always, they say, well, let's expand this. Let's try to cover as many problems or things that might be problems as possible. Uh, and it came to me to do the costs and benefits of it. And I, I spent a long time looking at it. I first, my first thought was this is infant formula. We've got to get this right. This is the sole source of nutrition for babies. Uh, so yeah, if there's a problem, let's get it right. And, uh, the cost shouldn't matter that much, but as we added, as I began to add up the cost of the record-keeping and the testing and all of these things that didn't have anything to do with the lactose intolerance, the cost started to grow considerably. Um, so I talked to one of our uh, consumer studies folks who I knew had, had done a lot of work on infant formula, and she said, well, here's the problem when, when you increase the cost. The women who, are not, who can't, for some reason, get it for free from the government, who are less well-off, are going to add water to it. And if they add water to it, then you have a real problem. Then you have nutritional deficiencies. Uh, And she said, we've actually investigated this and found out this has been going on. And at the same time, the Federal Trade Commission was concerned about the prices uh, because there was some price fixing going on. So what I did was I took what she had said and I wrote it up in a memorandum. And I thought, this is good economics. If we raise the price too much and we're not really addressing real risk, Uh, we're gonna actually increase risk. And this is something called risk-risk analysis. I wrote this memo up, I sent it around to several people, um, and that was a mistake from somebody who was new to the uh, bureaucracy, (laughs) just sending a memo out there. Uh, I learned, and uh, the guy who was working on the regulation came, threw open my door, shaking this memo with rage, called me a Nazi baby killer. And I asked him, again, not too smart, I said, well, did you even read the memo? (laughs) He just threw it at me and walked out. I guess the, the happy ending is, is that that regulation didn't go forward at that time. It took uh, over 20 years um, before we finally did something. And I, I hope it came out better, particularly for the babies.
0: And you mentioned the bureaucracy. I mean, how what was it like adapting there? You had names for different players in the, the FDA system and the kind of Good games, they played with budgeting. Can you kind of talk about how you survived in the FDA bureaucracy? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I almost didn't survive. I
1: was essentially fired twice, and the first time was within six months. Uh, and that was when I, I had this is one of my first rules that I had done by myself. It was on um, lead acetate, which is the thing that you put in Grecian formula, and it's lead, and lead you know can be toxic. So I but I looked at it, and the problem was is that it might cause skin cancer. Um, so I looked at it. I talked to some of our toxicologists about it. And at the time, you know, Grecian formula is supposed to take the gray out slowly. There was nothing to replace it. So in economic parlance, that means it's expensive because you got nothing to replace it. Um, and so I did a cost benefit analysis. I said, the costs are high. Um, in talking to the toxicologists, I said, the chances of getting skin cancer from this were pretty low. Uh, it's, you know, treatable. Um, so it, their benefits were sort of low, and I wrote that analysis. I was pretty proud of it. I'd worked pretty hard on it. Didn't think anything about it. And then a couple of weeks later, a woman knocks on my door, and she said, "They want the other analysis." And I said, "What other analysis?" She said, "Well, this seems to imply that we shouldn't ban it. Now we want you to write one that says we should ban it." And again, here I am, you know, sort of new to the agency. I said, "You know, I'm almost a PhD economist now. I hadn't quite finished." <laughs> But, uh, no, I'm not going to write two analysis. You have my analysis, and that's all they're going to get. And uh, she tried to contest, and I just said no, and she walked away. I didn't think anything about it until a few weeks later. I, was, was, I finally went to my intro to FDA class, and the deputy center director was there, and I talked to him on a break, and I told him about this story that somebody actually asked me to write two opposite analysis. And he immediately started turning red, and he said, that, that command came from me, and you will do that. And I again, I said something really stupid. I said, I'm not an economic prostitute. I'll never do that. And you can't fire me because uh, uh, I'm a federal government employee. Turns out that wasn't true in the first year they can fire you for anything. So he told me I was fired. He said, you're going to be fired. Uh, he never did. For whatever reason, uh, he just uh, decided not to, uh, for which I was glad. So I had started off having a problem right from the beginning. Um, uh, you know, I did I felt that if you were supposed to do an analysis, uh, that you should just do the analysis honestly. And that wasn't what a lot of people wanted. So uh, that remained a problem throughout my entire career. And finally, when I had a staff of my own, and I was trying to explain to them why I, I believe this was true, I said, you know, it's true that we have our bosses here in the FDA and they work for the Commission of the Food and Drug Administration, who works for the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Who works for the president and that's our chain of command but I got to tell you in terms of who's paying our salary the way I like to think about it is somewhere out in Iowa uh, there is a a waitress who's widowed and has a couple children and she's working to support those children and she pays her taxes and then I think about what I should write I'm I want to write something that um, basically gives her her money's worth.
0: Right so I mean I think that's important but in that in the system the FDA there's other interests and other people like you call some of them drones and their sensibilities <laughs> oh, yeah. are, are different. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, because you mentioned Cass Sunstein. I think he was an advisor under Obama who said, you know, these cost benefit analysis are essential because they take bias out of the processes or, or maybe the politicization. Right. Isn't that what uh, something? Yeah, else said?
1: and th- that's what what Cass said. and And I believe that's true if it's if it's allowed to be done properly. Um, but yeah, in talking about the people there are, I guess I don't know if this is like every org- organization, but there were people who sort of ride along in FDA. I call them the drones. They try to get by with doing as little work as humanly possible. They don't care that much about being promoted. They're getting great great benefits, and at the time they'd get a retirement. Uh, and then you have what I call the power files, the people who would do anything to get ahead. Um, uh, and, 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 and that also included getting more power for the FDA. Uh, they are very interested in that and then uh, the, one of the most unfortunate groups i i just think a group is, is the scientists, and they come in and they believe in their science and they come in they want to do good science and they also want to get in poli- involved in policy because let's face it that's it's a political agency and, and policy is what they do and the ones that finally came to policy meetings would become so discouraged when they found out that the science wasn't driving the policy uh, certainly, the economics wasn't driving it, but it was almost always, it was it was uh, politics. Decisions are political. It's a political agency, and decisions are made politically.
0: That's uh, That's an important way when looking at the FDA, too. One of the interesting facts that you had in your book that I wasn't aware of is that so many of the foods we eat are standardized. I didn't even know that there was the set standard or way to uh, ca- organize and characterize the foods we eat. Can you uh, talk about that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this goes back to the 1930s when, you know, women were beginning to uh, leave the home. Remember by 1941, a lot of women went into the war industries, but, but they had already begun to, to leave the home. And so in 1938, uh, the Congress was concerned that um, we got more and more packaged foods and they were having recipes that weren't, as they put it, like mom used to make, like mother used to make. So they wanted to standardize the recipes to make sure that if you called something jam, for example, it would be the same kind of recipe that mothers would traditionally use. And so um, that is going on today. About half of all our foods have these standards. Um, FDA just recently got rid of one of them for cherry pie. That said, here are the amount of cherries that you have to have in a pie. They finally took that one away. Uh, The one that I I thought was the most fun was we had a a standard for canned pear halves. Okay. Got a pear and half and it was canned. And so I was in a meeting and I said, why on earth does the FDA with all the serious problems we have to deal with, why do we have to have a canned pear size? And the director of food standards said, well, this is because uh, of dinner parties. And I realized, you know, I was a young man. I was, I'd never been invited to a dinner party, so I didn't know what you did at dinner parties. And she said, well, what if you had a pear salad? And she had to explain what that was. It's a slice of pear on a, on a piece of lettuce and it had some cottage cheese and a cherry on top of it. And what if you had a pear and it was smaller than the one of the person sitting next to you? Think how you would feel. And I just sat there and I said, wait a minute. I'm thinking to myself, are you telling me the, the power of the FDA is is here to make sure that people aren't insulted by the size of their pear at a dinner party i was astounded and yet you know that's what it is so uh ketchup is standardized you know how you make it salsa is not well guess which one has thousands of varieties to appeal to every taste and which one has one variety
0: right no it is really incredible like we take it for granted that these are Uh, standardized or whatever, like, I mean, ketchup or whatever. It's really, is remarkable how they've become systematized. And you also go into kind of some of the rules and regulations and how they, from the FDA and how they apply uh, burdens on the smaller businesses that the bigger businesses don't have to endure. Can you talk about the effect of some of the FDA policies upon different segments of the business world?
1: Sure. You know, this has been a problem in regulations forever. Uh, President Clinton, actually, surprisingly, did something about it. He called a lot of small businesses together and he asked for recommendations. Well, what can we do about small businesses and regulations? And they came up with like 100 recommendations. And it resulted in the Regulatory Flexibility Act. And what that said is agencies have to evaluate the impacts on small businesses. So if you think about a small business making the same thing that a large business does, and let's say the small business makes a thousand widgets, if you will, And the large agency makes a million widgets. Well, if there's a fixed regulatory cost that has to be passed on because they have to pass these things on, the small business can't pass on $2 per product if the large business is passing on uh, a tenth of a cent per product. So the small business goes out of business. So that's kind of the theory behind this thing. Uh, FDA fights this. Most Most of the firms that make foods are small, and they actually suffer. And so I, I detailed a couple of cases, one in seafood. This was the first sea, big seafood process rule that we had. And FDA said, we're just not going to grant any relief for small firms, um, despite this Regulatory Flexibility Act. Uh, and, and we didn't. And I, subsequently, I, had, I talked to a, a woman up in New England who made smoked fish. And she talked about just being hounded by FDA inspectors over this. And nothing she did was good enough for them. And at one point, they would say, you can go back to business and start selling your product. And then a couple of days later, they would call her and go, no, you can't. We've changed our mind. And it went on and on like that. She's spending tens of thousands of dollars. And they finally just drove her out of business. And that's only one story. And I, I'll just tell you the other thing that really struck me was, was Senator McGovern. And when he got out of government, he bought himself uh, a small business. In this case, it was an inn. And he found out that all the thousands of rules that he had to apply, and he says, "These are crazy. We, sh- I wish I'd known about this in government. We should do something about this." Um, and unfortunately, it's it's good to have the law, but but FDA is, uh, as many agencies, really don't take it, in my view, seriously enough, and we put small businesses at risk.
0: Right, and I mean, yeah. So the small businesses have these onerous. Or harder to apply regulations, cost them more. And it seems like there, I think you said that there was one kind of minor change in the regulations that allowed smaller businesses to opt out after some. Well, b-
1: it, actually, what happened was the rule was changed. And what it did allow them to do is it allowed them to sue the federal government. However, that, that's a great thing to add. And it kind of puts a little more on the uh, burden on the federal government to, to grant them some relief. If you can't give them more time to comply, maybe don't you know have to do all of the things that the large businesses do. The problem is, is that small businesses, and I know this from my experience, are petrified of the federal government. They don't want to sue them. They don't want to talk to them. They don't want their name to be known. Uh, and and one of the surveys that I did where we went out and surveyed the, the food plants, 30% of the of the small food companies we surveyed didn't even know that FDA inspected them. That was a surprise to them. They didn't even know they were under
0: FDA rules. Wow. And I mean, you kind of make that point in your book that this organization, nobody knows how it works on the inside. You probably, you know, 95% of the American people do not understand the totality of what's going on at the FDA. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, I I would absolutely agree. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, Um, you know. I think I said in the book, nobody's supposed to write the book I wrote. And far as I know, nobody has ever made a career out of the FDA and then written a book about it. Uh, And I don't think I'm sure that a lot of people probably aren't happy that I did that. But I wanted to write it not for scientists or economists. I wanted to write it just for people. And so that's why I included a lot of the stories. There is some science in it and some economics. But hopefully what people will take away is more of an understanding of what goes on behind the closed doors.
0: Right, and I mean, you do talk about the science. What do you think is wrong with the science as the FDA is applying it today?
1: Well, I think one of the big problems is, is, is how we think about safety. And, uh, you know, certainly everybody thinks about safety somewhat differently. But just for example, um, when we look at food and color additives, for example, we, have to, we use the safety rule that basically cranks down how much is allowed in the food to, to an infinitesimal degree. So a friend of mine who's an FDA toxicologist, after he left, he wrote a book and he wrote a, a wonderful analogy. He said, well, suppose we applied that same way of evaluating safety and trying to set a limit for how much you should consume to water. So what he did is, is you go and you, find, you use a rat study or a mouse study and you say, well, what's the lowest level at which the, the, the test rats or the mice don't have any effect whatsoever? And then you do that and you divide it by, say, at least a hundred. In some cases, that division can be by 10,000. Well, when he did that for water, you know, you need about two to two and a half gallons of water a day to, to stay healthy. He found out that if the FDA had applied that methodology to water, it said, if you drank over eight ounces, one glass of water a day, that's dangerous. That's the methodology we use for determining safety. And that's just one of the issues. Uh, another issue is in nutrition. And this of course is where the huge risks are. Um, in order to do these diet disease relationships, you look at something you consume and you wanna find out what happened. Did you get heart disease or diabetes or whatever? Uh, you have to you have to find out how much people consume. So the studies that we use that are done by USDA, you ask people in the last 24 hours, what did you eat? Not only what did you eat, but how much of it did you eat when you ate it? Well, people have gone back and looked at that. And I actually did a paper with a friend just to, to verify it. And turns out people don't report let's say 60% of the people that respond don't report eating enough food to stay alive. Well, when that happens, you're starting with bad data, right? You have to sort of fill in the blank or make up what you think they ate. But if you have bad data going in, you have bad science coming out. And so when we see a lot of these, these nutrition studies that come out in some cases, they're reversing each other. That's one big problem is that the data is so bad that we just don't know. And that's the data that FDA is relying on as well.
0: Right. So they're looking at uh, this data, but it also seems like the FDA is more interested in keeping the food safe than its effect upon consumers. You, you talk about the obesity epidemic. Would you agree that the FDA, in its sensibilities, are uh, underrepresenting the needs of the, Amer- the health of the American people by not addressing these health hazards?
1: Well, I, I think they do address them, I, I, but the problem is, I think in many cases, uh, FDA is much more concerned with their reputation and, and building, you know, the, the, how much money they get every year. And so I, I do think that that they're not addressing the the, problem, the issues that we have. And so one of the issues is that is that the science is changing. So in nutrition, for example, again, this is the big killer, right? Um, The estimates of how many people die from poor nutrition in this country range from 400,000, that's the Centers for Disease Control, to uh, about 670,000 people die every year from poor nutrition and and insufficient exercise. And right now, I think there are things going on that will help consumers to eat better. Um, Particularly, we're we're seeing these devices that are coming along that will look at people as individuals and say, okay, well, what are your genetics? What is your makeup of your of your microbiome, what's your health status, You know, are you sick, um, how much exercise do you get, do you smoke? You take all these things, put them together, and you get a personalized diet. And we know now that there's no one diet that's right for everybody. Uh, I just saw a study recently that said people were fed, a low fat diet, some people gained weight and some people lost weight. Well, that's just the kind of the reason. But FDA continues to do things like, um, when they looked at the obesity problem, their biggest change that they've made uh, in the last decade was they put calories in bold on food labels. Well, that's sorry, that's just not going to get it. So I I think that there are real issues that FDA uh, needs to get into. And, you know, spending time on these, as we talked about the food standards, they're spending a lot of time on these. So we have all these new proteins coming out, new meats, milk, cheeses, and so forth. Well, FDA came out and said, well, we're going to look at the milks uh, because we don't know, for example, if almond milk should be allowed to be called milk. And we're going to spend a year doing that. Well, it's been over two years, and they're still working on that. So we have people dying from obesity, being overweight, obesity, and poor nutrition. We've got one out of six people being getting food poisoning every year, as they have for decades. And they're worried about almond milk.
0: Right. It is interesting. You said that that food poisoning has stayed with uh, steady, even all during the time the FDA has existed, right? Uh,
1: well, not, not, no, it was worse when they were first came okay. around. Uh, and, and actually, FDA did some good things back in the 20s. They required milk to be pasteurized. And that was huge because milk was a, uh, you know, a, a huge source of, of uh, problems back then because it wasn't refrigerated, just left on the doorstep. But over the decades that I worked there, it's been the same. We haven't made any improvement whatsoever in in food safety. And they keep having the same numbers. Uh, It's 48 million people get foodborne illness every year. And those are the numbers they use to justify their budget. Well, nobody in Congress asks. well, wait a minute. Okay, that's what you used last year, the year before, and the year before that. And we gave you a lot of money. Like in the last 10 years, we've given them, say, $10 billion for food safety. What'd you do with the money? What about all the money that firms are required to spend? How come you're not making any progress? Nobody ever asked that question.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And you're a critic of the food labels in general. Can you expand upon why you think that they're not uh, effective enough?
1: They're, they're simply not effective. They're way too complex. Uh, in my mind, they're almost written for nutritionists. And, of course, nutritionists love them, and no one else does. Uh, there's there's one lady I know that wrote a book and she said, well, if you'll just take a couple hours and read my book, you'll understand how to use food labels. In fact, uh, the research has shown over and over again that nobody knows how to use these things. And just by way of example, I went to our nutrition office one time and I talked to a lot of the nutritionists in, in the FDA and I said, well, do you use the food label? And particularly, do you use this thing called percent daily value, which is kind of the key to using the food label. Use that when you make, make your food purchase decisions. they said, no, (laughs) not really. (laughs) So it's, it's really, it doesn't work for consumers. Um, you know, you, you have people saying, Oh, this is the, this is the greatest icon in the world. You know, everybody knows the food label, but if people aren't using it and they don't know how to use it wisely, um, we really need something better. What would you recommend? So right now, all over the world, um, a lot of manufacturers are figuring out that the government isn't really succeeding at, at doing these things, particularly uh, getting people to eat, eat better, and they're coming out with these devices, again, that are personalized based on your personal characteristics, but they're also saying, here's what you should eat based on your personal characteristics, but also, what do you like? What kind of foods do you like? Within that choice set, let's figure out what you can eat that will you know, help you control your weight and help you control things like chronic heart disease and diabetes, which are on the rise. And I think those devices are gonna ultimately be so much better than trying to educate people on the food label. We've been trying for 30 years now and uh, it hasn't made the slightest bit of difference.
0: So like some kind of Fitbit or something that helps you select- Exactly,
1: exactly. Only if you think about how consumer electronics have grown, you know, where we started, you know, the first calculator and where we are now. Imagine if we had that kind of technological growth in nutrition, and and, uh, where we could take a lot more data, tons of data, and we pack it into these small devices, and it gives people better information. So you don't have to learn nutrition. All you have to do is wear it. It'll have uh, sensors that will determine whether or not you're going right or you're going wrong. To me, this is the future. um, And what I hope is that there's not a lot of resistance in FDA to approving these devices.
0: Right, I would say that that's we're getting very close. I know a lot of people who use health apps on their phones, so I think that uh, specified, individuated apps for people's food choices are not that far off. I mean,
1: I hope so. I, I think it's it's, it's there's so many many other things, new technologies that are coming along that are going to be just fantastic. I uh, just to give you one example. Um, there's, there's some food packaging coming along where you take nano size, you know, very, very, very tiny material sensors, you put it in the packaging and it can detect if a food is being spoiled. So rather than using those use by and sell by dates, which actually don't make a lot of sense, it would say, hey, you know what? Don't eat this can of food, it's being spoiled. It's just little things like that uh, that are so much better. Um, when we have an out- outbreak, we're gonna be much better at tracing foods back to the source so we know actually what to stop. In the past, maybe it's taken at minimum of about six days to trace a food back. When we have all this trace back technology into place, it's going to take about two seconds.
0: Right, yeah. So, I mean, so really wonderful hard. stuff. So good things are on the horizon. What would you? How would you advise the FDA, as somebody who was there for three, three decades, where, what's the future of this uh, administrative body?
1: Well, where it's going, uh, that's hard to say. Uh, I know where I would like for it to go. Uh, first of all, with with respect to these new devices, they come under uh, medical food regulations. So they're outside, or excuse me, medical device regulations. So they're outside of the part of FDA that regulates foods, actually. Right now, the way the regulations read, and these are all laws. This is 1976 Medical Devices Act. It says, well, if, the, if this device does anything to diagnose or treat or Basically, has any use whatsoever, it has to go through the most rigorous scrutiny. And what that means is a minimum of a year to get it approved, probably somewhere 24 million dollars or north of that. And if you think about a lot of small businesses out there trying to create these things, a lot of people you know around the world trying to create these things, and then you go to FDA and you've got to pay a huge amount of money. You got to raise that money somehow. You're going to have long delays, not just at at the initial. Uh, approval, but every time you make an improvement, it's got to go back to FDA for improvement. That's something I think that FDA needs to work on, and and Congress to let's let's get these things out there. We're in a we're in a crisis right now with all, all the deaths. I'd like to see FDA go back <clears throat> to doing one of their original jobs, which was described to me as being a cop. If there are bad actors out there, go after them. Spend your time doing that. I think that would be uh, would be much more uh, helpful, uh, particularly in doing things like food standards. So just a couple of things that I think FDA could do to, you know, basically move the ball along. But right now I think consumers, um, look to the private markets, look to these, the new products coming out, the new proteins that are coming out, all these new products. Uh, I think they're going to be helpful and help solve our problems, uh, much more so than I think FDA is doing.
0: Interesting. So you recommend people look out for these newer, healthier options in food sources and foodstuffs?
1: Yeah, I do. And I know it's 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 a hard sell for most consumers. I talked to a guy uh, in the food industry one time and he said, you know, consumers don't want to eat technology. And I said, well, that's interesting because all food is created through technology. You know, everybody says, oh, well, you know, I just want to eat natural. Well, good luck with that. There's really nothing natural in our food supply. We've, no, we've yeah. been manipulating plants for 10,000 years and animals for several hundred years. So nothing should, is Yeah,
0: natural. go look at the standard uh, <laughs> place where a chicken is made or a pig. It's high technology, man. A lot of, from oh, the absolutely. beginning to the end to the slaughterhouses and everything. So people, yeah, it's, it's, I, I agree with you. I think that people need to be looking out for these new proteins. I really enjoyed this book, really excellent read, a lot of good information, and you can tell you're an insider, so all the stories of uh, your kind of being in this bureaucracy were really fascinating to, to read. Where's the best place for people to get fixing food?
1: Uh, go on my website, and it head lists all the places you can buy it. It's richardawilliams.com.
0: Richard A. Williams, I'm going to put that in the show notes, so it's Richard, right.
1: your full name, richardawilliams.com, correct? RichardAWilliams.com, A. yes. A. And it's it's available wherever books are sold. So gotcha. you know, Amazon, Books May, and wherever.
0: And is that if people want to contact you, the best place is to go to RichardAWilliams.com as well. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. So is, yeah, probably so the best way. The best way, gotcha. And again, the title of the boot, the the book is Fixing Food, an FDA Insider Unravels the Myths and the Solutions by Dr. Richard A. Williams will be published October 26, 2021. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Stay Stay there, stay there. Yep, sure. Okay, that was perfect.